You're listening to Lost in History with Scott Miller. In February 1901, American troops were locked in brutal fighting in the Philippines, still trying to gain control of a nation that President William McKinley had claimed from Spain two years before. Brigadier General Frederick Funston, a diminutive, ruddy-haired son of the Kansas Plains, had been there from the start. Famed for his battlefield exploits, Funston had become something of a poster child of the nascent United States Empire, both for those who celebrated American glory and those who were horrified by American excesses. Teddy Roosevelt would write him fan mail. Mark Twain would pin scathing attacks. Love him or hate him, Funston had nothing more to prove when it came to soldiering, and he might have sat out the war from the safety and comfort of a desk job. But when the general learned the whereabouts of rebel leader Emilio Aguinaldo, he leapt at a chance for glory. The plan he devised meant traveling for days into rebel-controlled territory and springing a dangerous trap. The stakes were huge. A successful mission could finally end the war and secure American rule over the Philippines. But the odds were overwhelmingly stacked against him. Arthur MacArthur Jr., the top American army officer in the Philippines, confessed he didn't think he would ever see Funston alive again. I'm Scott Miller. History is typically told through the stories of the great and the famous. Researching my books, though, I've discovered countless little-known figures who have shaped America's past. In this podcast, I'm telling their stories. As listeners of previous episodes know, I've been drawing on work from my book, The President and the Assassin, McKinley, Terror, and Empire at the Dawn of the American Century. One of the most remarkable features of McKinley's administration was the emergence of the United States as a global power. Funston, in many ways, embodied the zeitgeist of the era. Fueled with patriotic zeal, he felt he could accomplish anything. In today's episode, I'll tell the story of Funston's boldest adventure. Frederick Funston was born in 1865 and grew up amid rolling Kansas fields of wheat and corn on a 160-acre farm. Yet he was no hayseed. Inside the family home, neatly trimmed by a white picket fence and roses, his father had built a library of 600 books that the young Funston consumed. And it was politics, not farming, that dominated family conversation at the dinner table. His dad was Speaker of the House in the Kansas Legislature, and he would later join the United States Congress. Funston didn't look the part of farm boy either, standing five foot five and weighing no more than 120 pounds. But Funston possessed the toughness and fighting spirit of a man twice his size. Rejected by West Point because of his slight stature and in different grades, he only really put effort into subjects that interested him, he enrolled at the University of Kansas, where he quickly earned a reputation for hard drinking and fighting. A friend once noted that if Fred even smelled a rotten apple, he began tearing up the sidewalks. Yet he was also a hopeless romantic, losing his heart to a series of girls who never seemed to return his affections. Desperate to see the world, he left college before graduating and took a string of jobs that offered more in the way of travel than career fulfillment one of his first was as a ticket taker on a train. He once was confronted with a muscular 200-pound man carrying a loaded 44, but not carrying a ticket. 
Funston responded by kicking the weapon from the freeloader's hand and physically throwing him off the train. But the rails could only take him so far, and his father called in a few political favors to land him a job helping scientists collecting flora and fauna in Death Valley. The hardships of soaring temperatures, storms, and terrible food were for Funston heaven. When the contract ended, he sought even more extreme thrills. He blazed a new trail in Yosemite, lived among Indians in California, and between 1891 and 1894 made two botanical expeditions into the Alaska Territory. Once traveling with nothing more than a book by Rudyard Kipling for company, Funston followed the Yukon River above the Arctic Circle and hiked out to the Bering Sea. He hunted animals for pelts to trade for ammunition and food. When he finally returned home, he earned some desperately needed cash by lecturing about his adventures. It was, however, Spain's 400-year-old colonial empire that figured most prominently in Funston's life. In Cuba, one of the last vestiges of Madrid's powerful past, a revolution for independence had begun in the 1890s. Funston, around this time, traveled to New York, where he unsuccessfully tried to land a job as a reporter with the New York Sun. Feeling dejected, he was wandering the city, wondering what to do next, when he happened on an event at Madison Square Garden to drum up support for the Cuban Freedom Movement. The next day, he reported to the office of the Cuban Junta on 56th Street and volunteered to join the revolutionaries in their war with Spain. While Funston waited to ship out, he took it upon himself to visit the warehouse of an arms dealer and saw a Hotchkiss breech-loading gun that fired a 12-pound shell. Funston knew nothing about artillery, but he studied the manual until he learned how to assemble and disassemble it and the elements of artillery aiming. When the Cubans learned what he was doing, they asked him to teach other recruits and delivered one of the guns to a small room above a saloon on 3rd Avenue where he, having never actually fired the weapon, conducted a class on its use. Funston would spend the next two years in Cuba, serving as an artillery officer, infantryman, and cavalryman, fighting in 22 battles. It was dangerous on-the-job training in the art of soldiering. He, Cubans, and a handful of other Americans employed hit-and-run attacks and ambushes, suffering considerable casualties. Two horses were shot out from beneath Funston. He got malaria. He was shot through the lung and injured his leg in a riding accident. Funston returned home weighing 80 pounds, nearly crippled from a thigh injury and frequently coughing up blood. He was, in the words of a friend, the most dilapidated young man in America and appeared to have suffered all the illnesses in the book. He remained in the hospital for a month, but through it all, he thrived. And almost imperceptibly at first, the legend of Frederick Funston began to spread. Reporters from American newspapers began to materialize at the family farm back in Kansas to learn more about this swashbuckling yank. While Funston had been fighting in the island's jungles, U.S. public opinion had swelled in support of the Cubans. Driven partly by sympathy for the Cuban people, and partly by a hunger to rid the Western Hemisphere of European influence, Americans began to rally around the idea that the U.S. must help Cuba gain its freedom, even if that meant sending in the military. 
Newspapers produce sensational accounts of Spanish brutalities. In one, perhaps apocryphal story, newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst told sketch artist Frederick Remington, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. President McKinley, though, was cautious. Deeply religious and conservative by nature, he dreaded the idea of declaring war with Spain. But increasingly, he was almost powerless to stop America's hunger to put the Spanish in their place. Public pressure for the war reached a crescendo in the middle of February 1898. On the evening of the 15th, the USS Maine, a battleship which McKinley had sent to Havana, mysteriously blew up and sank, killing over 250 Americans. Nobody knew what exactly had happened, but seemingly the entire country was convinced that the Spanish must have been responsible. McKinley, finally bowing to public pressure, declared war on April 20th. It is a historical oddity that the Spanish-American War, which was all about Cuba, should have begun almost 10,000 miles away in the Philippines. But it was against the Spanish fleet in Manila that McKinley struck the first blow. On the morning of May 1, 1898, Commodore George Dewey led an American fleet brazenly into Manila's harbor and won perhaps the most lopsided naval battle in American history, killing or wounding nearly 400 Spaniards at the loss of but a single American sailor who suffered a heart attack. Once the smoke had cleared, nobody seemed sure about what to do next, but McKinley thought it advisable to at least hold the area around Manila and sent troops from the United States. Throughout America, in fact, young men had been rushing to enlist for the war effort with all the enthusiasm and excitement of boys headed for summer camp. In Kansas, Governor John Leedy had recently heard Funston give a speech and quickly named him to lead one of the state's volunteer regiments, the 20th. Rushing to ready his men before shipping out, Funston soon realized he was unprepared to lead a large body of troops, a shortcoming the United States government didn't help with. So unprepared for war was the United States that Funston didn't even have a uniform. Wearing street clothes, he put his men through training exercises that he had learned only from books. Yet with a distinct limp that gave him an air of credibility and a torrent of multilingual profanity, he whipped his Kansas troops into shape. They arrived in the Philippines on December 1st, 1898 and took up positions in trenches around Manila, waiting for word from Washington about what to do next. In the weeks that followed, the focus of the Spanish-American War returned to the Caribbean. Fighting had been bloody and American troops were poorly equipped in comparison to the Spanish. But through grit and determination, they were making steady gains. American forces, including Teddy Roosevelt and his famed Rough Riders, had landed in Cuba and defeated the Spanish in the Battle of San Juan Hill. And an American naval victory after that effectively ended Madrid's rule of Cuba. The U.S. followed those victories by attacking the Spanish in Puerto Rico and gained control there as well. Peace talks to end the Spanish-American War began in Paris on October 1, 1898. McKinley would later confess he could not place the Philippines within 2,000 miles of their actual location on a map. But he did know they were not far from China. Combined with Hawaii, which the president had annexed in 1898, the Philippines could serve as a vital stepping stone to the vast wealth of the Orient. 
The Spaniards had expected McKinley to demand independence for Cuba and American control of Puerto Rico, but they were astonished to hear he now also wanted the Philippines. They had to admit to themselves, though, they were in no position to refuse, and they gratefully accepted McKinley's offer of $20 million for the islands. For the Filipino rebel Emilio Aguinaldo, McKinley's decision was a shattering blow. A member of a well-to-do family, Aguinaldo had worked as a businessman and had been a mayor until he took up arms against the Spanish. Among revolutionaries, he was known to be shrewd and ruthless in dealing with rivals for his place as their leader. Caught by the Spanish and exiled to Hong Kong, he'd watched Dewey's ships leave for Manila with tremendous hope. America, itself a former colony, would surely deliver the Philippines back to his people, he thought. When McKinley decided otherwise, Aguinaldo returned to Manila and reactivated his revolutionary forces. On February 4, 1899, two days before the U.S. Senate ratified the annexation of the Philippines, fighting began when insurgents exchanged fire with American sentries guarding a bridge in Manila. The first night, everything went the Americans' way. One soldier called it more fun than a turkey shoot. Funston, who had been waiting in the Philippines with nothing to do for weeks, was thrilled to be back in action. In April, he led a squad across the Chico River on the island of Luzon, swimming part of the way under a hailstorm of gunfire. Later, he rigged up a raft to cross the Pampanaga River to the south to attack a Maxim gun that was pinning down his men, suffering a wound to his hand in the process. For his bravery, Funston was promoted to Brigadier General of the Kansas Volunteers and received a Medal of Honor. At home, where stories of Funston's daring do were gaining attention, newspapers began to speculate that he could run for governor of Kansas. During a home leave, Funston and the volunteers were treated like celebrities. Reporters hired boats to greet their ship in San Francisco as they returned from Asia. There were parades and press conferences. Well-wishers collected $1,000 to buy Funston a ceremonial sword specially ordered from Tiffany's in New York. There were banquets and people wanted his autograph. Teddy Roosevelt, then governor of New York, invited him to come to his home on Oyster Bay, an invitation Funston had to refuse to get back to the fighting. Back in the Philippines, though, the U.S. was funding the war harder than expected. Troops could only advance so far into the countryside without leaving supply lines dangerously exposed. Spread hopelessly thin, American troops had to leave captured territory to fight other battles, allowing the rebels to retake towns and villages. As one American put it, if the war was a football field, Aguinaldo kept moving the goalposts. Shifting tactics, Aguinaldo decided to begin a guerrilla campaign. His men would fight by day and at night melt into villages where the Americans could not tell friend from foe. Atrocities skyrocketed on both sides. The Filipinos tortured American prisoners and the Americans burned villages they suspected of sheltering rebels, murdering even women and children. There would be no end to it, U.S. commanders concluded, until Aguinaldo was captured. For months, they chased him through jungles and mountain passes. Sometimes they got tantalizingly close, but they were never able to find him. One night in February 1901, when Funston was staying up late doing paperwork, Troopers brought a bedraggled insurgent to see him. Dressed in rags and a wide-brimmed straw hat, 
the captive was carrying letters from other rebels, including one signed by a false name that Aguinaldo was known to use. Employing what they called forceful means, the Americans learned from the courier that Aguinaldo was holed up in a tiny, isolated village in northeast Luzon called Palanon. Funston devised a plan to capture the elusive rebel leader. On the stormy pre-dawn morning of March 14, 1901, a U.S. naval ship deposited Funston and 80 men at a secluded village almost 30 miles from the nearest American outpost. Well aware that they could quickly be discovered, Funston had a plan. He and a collection of American troops were to pose as prisoners who had been captured by rebels. The Americans' fake captors would be native Filipino scouts loyal to the U.S. These men were to spread word that they had orders to deliver the prisoners to Aguinaldo's hideout. Once there, the team would kidnap Aguinaldo and spare him down a mountain trail to a waiting American ship. Ahead lay a hundred-mile march through rice paddies and mountainsides of bamboo and giant ferns. Carrying little food, the men subsided on dishes of moldy rice and stews of snail and tiny fish, a revolting mess in the words of one. Their ruse seemed to work. Villagers loyal to Aguinaldo offered the scouts and their American prisoners lodging and guides to take them to the rebel leader. But when they were only a day's march away, Funston's men were delivered a curveball. Aguinaldo's men would not allow American prisoners, including Funston, to travel to their headquarters. Only the native scouts posing as the Americans' captors would be permitted to reach the rebel stronghold. Leaving Funston behind, the scouts made their way up steep mountain paths until they reached a village of 80 thatched huts, bounded by a river on one side and jungle on all others. Here they would play out the last act of their charade. The scout leader, Lazaro Segovia, had his men assemble in the village square for a review and a salute to the blue, red, and white Filipino flag. While they waited, he was taken to Aguinaldo, whom he found dressed in a khaki uniform with Spanish riding boots and his hair coiffed in a pompadour. Fearful over how long his men could continue the charade, Segovia wasted little time. He excused himself, went outside, and waved his hat. Now is the time. Give it to them. His men shot point-blank into the rebel troops in the square. Segovia then ran back to Aguinaldo and shouted, You are our prisoners. We are not insurgents. We are Americans. Surrender or be killed. Aguinaldo, pale and with tears in his eyes, could only ask, Is this not some joke? At that moment, Funston and the Americans arrived in the camp, having tricked their captors into letting them leave. Taking command of the scene, Funston led Aguinaldo down the mountain to a beach where the USS Vicksburg waited. Using a bedsheet as a semaphore, his men signaled, We have them! Send boats for all! The ship signaled back, Bully! On the beach, the Americans heard a faint cheer from the ship's crew. Transported back to Manila, Aguinaldo was surprised to find himself well-treated. MacArthur, the military commander, gave Aguinaldo a comfortable suite of rooms with a view of the parade ground, which he watched in confusion as American soldiers played pickup football. He confessed to his American captors that he had known the resistance was doomed and he was happy to be alive. 
Aguinaldo grew to grudgingly respect the Americans, predicting they would be better masters of the islands than the Spanish. The war between the United States and Filipino rebels officially ended in July 1902. Funston returned to the United States to find the country deeply divided on the war and his role in it. His heroics on the battlefield were beyond dispute, and many Americans believed they had a duty to bring civilization to places like the Philippines. Indeed, Funston was flooded with high-paying lecture offers. But anti-imperial sentiment had also taken hold, fueled in part by tales of horrific brutality by American troops. One of Funston's former soldiers alleged that he had shot prisoners, and there were rumors that Funston had sanctioned atrocities. Mark Twain, vice president of the Anti-Imperialist League, opposed the occupation of the Philippines, and in February 1901 had written an article in the North American Review titled, To a Person Sitting in the Darkness, that satirized American imperialism. In May 1901, he followed with another article criticizing Funston's use of trickery to capture Aguinaldo. Twain warned that rising Funstonism was taking hold of the country and claimed that he was a flawed hero. Funston called anti-imperialists like Twain misguided dupes and said that his spoof of them was very ladylike. Funston's star continued to rise in the years to follow. He commanded an army installation in the Presidio in San Francisco. By the middle of World War I, he had come to be the odds-on favorite to be chosen by Wilson to lead an American expeditionary force to France, should the U.S. enter the war. But the strains of nonstop work and years of battlefield wounds and diseases caught up with him. Funston died of a heart attack in February 1917 in San Antonio. Funston is almost forgotten today, as is the war the U.S. waged in the Philippines. Yet his role in that conflict, for better or for worse, played a key part in securing American governorship of the islands that lasted through World War II. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter at Lost, the letter N, History Pod. And be sure to check out my website, www.scottmillerauthor.com. We will see you next time.